Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, October 3rd, 2020, and this is a weekly market update. So, links to all of these articles that I'm quoting from in the show notes. Um, so, this week, the European Central Bank got together uh, their brain trust over there. And they had some things similar to say to what Jerome Powell said and uh, a few weeks ago. And why I'm bringing this up is because I get asked a lot, John, why are you bullish on gold? Why are you bullish on hard assets? And this isn't something that I'm bullish about for the next three to six months. This is something that I think is going to be a decade-long, five-year to ten-year situation. And I'm going to tell you why. We've talked about this before, but here in the United States and most of the developed Western countries, you have tremendous amounts of debt. So much debt that it cannot be paid back. We showed that last week with debt to GDP ratios just off the charts and getting worse. Um, not to mention corporate debt, personal debt, state and municipal debt, all these things. Well, they have the same issue in Europe. You have all these countries are in debt. And so what I said has happened in the past throughout history is that what governments typically do is they don't certainly aren't going to pay it back. That's not even possible at this point. The other option would be to, you know, initiate some austerity and really and cut government and slow down the spending and let the economy grow faster than and slowly shrink the debt. That would be another thing to do. Well, that's not going to happen either because in these uh, so-called democracies, um, people are going to vote for free stuff if they're able to do it. So that's how you get elected, right? You, you portray yourself as a populist, somebody that's for the people. You're going to solve some problem that they have, i.e. health care or environmental issues. And you run around and, like a sociopath and tell all these lies. And then you... Or say you're going to build up, you know, the Navy to 700 ships or whatever, raise defense spending. It goes both ways. And uh, certain segments of the population like that. And then people that are in those industries give you money. And then you pass legislation to do what they want, not what the people that think that they're one vote that, that are voting for you want. That's how things really work. And so that's why the debt isn't going to be paid back. That's why the debt isn't going to, that's why the, the government isn't going to be shrunk. The, the swamp is not going to be drained. This isn't going to happen. And people that think that are just, they're just naive. You know, I'm trying to mellow out in my older age, so I don't want to say what I really think about people like that. But you're being naive. It's not going to happen. The historical narrative is because things don't change. Human nature is the same throughout history and there's nothing new under the sun, what they do, governments do, is they debase their currencies. And it's, you can just flat out print the money, or you can do other things. You can do what's financial, called financial repression. You can keep interest rates at a very low level, for example, for a long period of time, like zero or less than 1%, and then you can force the inflation rate up, or attempt to at least, and run the inflation rate higher, substantially higher than the current interest rate, and then you will have a negative real rate. You will effectively be 
taking money, stealing wealth from uh, savers. So that's what we've already talked about that the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government plan is. You know, this is what these central bankers want to do. And here's another, you know, people think, well, they're reacting to the coronavirus. They have a mandate. No, they want to print money. They're there for a reason. They were put there for a reason. That's why all these people go to the same schools. They all come off Wall Street. The people that are in the European Central Bank go to the same schools in France. They're trained bureaucrats. And they are there to do the bidding of the oligarchy that's in charge. This is not a conspiracy theory. You can just see it. And I'll, and I'll get into that in the next slide after the reality check. So anyways, you know, we talked about Jerome Powell and what he's planning on doing. We've talked about how this was done after World War II in the U.S., financial repression. And now we have the ECB talking about the same thing. European Central Bank could be about to tweak its main policy objective as it combats the economic fallout from coronavirus. Oh, under the cover of coronavirus, they're going to do something that they want to do anyways, that they were created to do, that is their real mandate. They're going to tell you, the schlub, the bleacher bum, the nine to five guy, it's because of coronavirus. Since 2003, the central bank has targeted an inflation rate below but close to 2%. Okay, I have a question. Why is an inflation rate of 2% perceived to be good and necessary? Because if you extrapolate that over 25 years or your working lifetime of 40, you're going to lose a lot of purchasing power at a 2% inflation rate that compounds over 40 years. But that's never asked or discussed. In an attempt to address concerns over significant consumer price rises. So they've been trying to keep it below but close to 2% in an attempt to address concerns over significant consumer price rises. However, the ECB is currently more worried about sluggish price increases. As a result, a recent strategy review in Frankfurt could lead to a new target. Doesn't this sound familiar? This is a quote from Christine Lagarde, who is the head of the ECB, while makeup strategies may be less successful when people are not perfectly rational in their decisions, which is probably a good approximation of the reality we face, the usefulness of such an approach could be examined. Well, that means they're going to do it. That's what the Federal Reserve is going to do, and that's what they're going, that's what the ECB is going to do. And they don't just come out and say, hey guys, we're going to start printing more money, and we're going to create inflation, and we're going to run hot, and if you're a creditor, you better run, or you're, if you're a uh, saver or a creditor, you better run for the hills because we're going to uh, run real negative rates. And if you uh, are loaning money to people, you're going to be the loser on that deal. They don't tell you that. But this is what they have to do, right? And these things are complicated. People don't want to think about it. But this is this is what's happening. And they talk in these this jargon that the average person can't understand and doesn't want to understand and doesn't have the ability to understand in most cases. And they're just going to go off and do what they do, which is do the bidding of the oligarchs. You know, if you're somebody in the investor class, you don't want to see mild disinflation or deflation over time. If you're a working man, a mild disinflation under a gold standard is great because your wages gain value over time. The money that you hold gains value over time. But if you live in a fiat monetary system, that benefits the Sharpies, the people on Wall Street, the people with access to that newly created money. We've gone over this 150 times. It's nothing new. 
And so people ask me, well, are you bullish on gold and hard assets? Absolutely. We are at the end of the 50-year, 100-year debt cycle, post-World War II debt cycle. Everybody is in debt up to their eyeballs. There's no way out of this deal. So you're going to run inflation higher than normal. They're going to keep interest rates artificially low. And they're going to steal wealth over time. They're going to boil the proverbial frog. And how you boil a frog is you place him in a pan of cold water and you slowly turn the heat up. And he never knows he's being boiled alive until he's boiled alive and he's dead. And so, you know, you have to protect yourself from these people. They are not operating in your best interest. They will couch it that way. They will put up their credentials. They will say that surround themselves with flags of PhDs. But in the bottom bottom line is, is that when they start down these paths of doing these things, again, we're back to that same central planning. Everybody here in the U.S., everybody on this call would think how ridiculous it was that people used to PhDs, thousands of them would sit inside the building in Moscow called Gosplan, means state planning, okay? And sitting there with notebooks, slide rules, and chalkboards trying to determine how much shoe polish to make each year in the Soviet Union. Or determining the the price of canned peaches in, in sweet syrup. People would think that was goofy. But this is just as goofy. This is price fixing and price setting. And all of a sudden, a 2% inflation rate? It's the same thing that Powell said. Why is 2% good? How come not 1%? How come not 10%? Who determined this? What was the criteria? How are they going to reach it? How are they going to keep it from getting out of control? See, we're back to that same idea that I'm so smart, that's why I'm here, and we're so smart up here at the Federal Reserve, at the ECB, or in government. We all we don't we don't trust the market. We don't trust you consumers. We don't trust that the free hand of the market will create a solution and set interest rate policy based on the demand for credit. Oh no no. That would be too chaotic, and then you couldn't, the Sharpies couldn't cream profits and get bailouts. What we're going to do is we're going to pull the levers and push the buttons, and we know in the right sequence to get the outcome we want. But where in history has that ever happened? That's my whole point. So yes, I want gold and hard assets as a store of value against the monetary malfeasance of government and central banks. And the, and, the, and the illusion, okay, and the arrogance of these people that they can determine and control this genie once they let it out of the bottle. They won't be able to. It will turn on them. It always has. Because it will get, you know, if a little bit works, a little bit more will work better, right? And that's what happens in the, in the beginning of these types of evolutions, at least in my study. The original or the first results of an initial inflation feel good for everybody. But then it becomes inculcated into the uh, consumer and business mindsets. And then people start saying, well, look, my prices are going up for the things I'm paying. I need a higher wage. They start demanding higher wages. And this thing starts cascading and creating a different, creating a different mindset in people. And behaviors change. Human action. Human beings are not automatrons. They cannot just be downloaded a program from the Borg or from the Federal Reserve Committee meetings in the New York Fed and perform the way that the Sharpies and Brainiacs think they will. 
And so this is what you're going to see. So this is why I'm bullish on gold, silver, other hard assets, because they're going down this path. Now, this the, the problem is, is the timing of these things again and the manifestation of them into something actionable. And that's why I say take your position and just, you know, add to it on weakness. That's what I say. That's what I've been doing. For me to just sit here and say, you know, chart the ups and downs and say, well, this is the low and this is the high, that's going to be very difficult. And so I think when things are out of favor, like energy, which is a historically undervalued and necessary for modern life, then you're a buyer. With the understanding that in an inflationary environment, energy performs the best, not gold. So that's my message for the reality check. So. When we talk about the Sharpies, this is what I want. This is interesting. This is in the news this week. JP Morgan caught rigging markets again. Again. How many times have we seen this in the news? Whether it's Morgan's, who, I can go through and do a search and, to, and it's bank after bank, investment bank after investment bank, financial institution out there rigging things. Remember Wells Fargo creating accounts for people that didn't want them or whatever, all kinds of shenanigans. And here is what I irritates me this is the kind of thing this is not capitalism this is crony capitalism this is fascism okay the combining of these large corporations with state power and this is what you get and nothing ever happens right because the corporation is punished well who the corporation is a conglomeration of people jp morgan will will pay 920 million dollars to settle charges that its commodity trading desk manipulated the market allowing the bank to rake in millions of dollars in profits the government alleged the case alleged jp morgan trading desk placed hundreds of thousands of orders for trades they intended to cancel the orders flooded the silver gold and other metals and treasuries markets and manipulated prices in a way that would later benefit the bank this is known as spoofing J.P. Morgan admitted it to its wrongdoing, though no restrictions were placed on the bank for misconduct. So they're going to take $920 million, which I'm sure is just a fraction of the money they've made over the years doing this. And I'm sure quite a bit of the traders that were doing this before are long gone. But who is responsible? Who is in charge? Who is the captain of the ship at J.P. Morgan? How about this instead? You're caught cheating. You're caught rigging the market. You're caught violating securities laws. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to go arrest the CEO, the entire board of directors, the chief operating officer, and the chief financial officer. And we're going to make a big deal out of it. We're going to go down to your office and we're going to perp duck walk you out and put you into a dirty, smelly, urine-stained, paddy wagon and take you down and fingerprint you and throw you in a cell with a bunch of uh, sterno bums and common criminals. And you're going to sit there. And then we're going to stall it out as long as we can before we, we get bail set for you. And then we're going to indict you and we're going to prosecute to the fullest of the law. And then we're also going to have this civil suit against the corporation. And then we're going to ban you as a primary dealer in the treasury market. J.P. Morgan is a primary dealer in the U.S. Treasury market, and they've been cheating. That means they're one of the certified, I think, 10 or 12 banks that's allowed to uh, trade in the Treasury market, big-time trades. How about banning them for 10 years, and the next time you do it forever? 
or just put them out of business or force these investment banks to become partnerships so the partners themselves are liable. Then we put a name to it. Remember back in the mortgage, the housing bubble in 2008, Countrywide Financial? Remember uh, his name His name was Mozilla, I think the guy's name. They called him Orange Zillow. He had that, he had that white hair, perfect white hair, custom-made bespoke suits, and that orange tan of his. And the guy was one of the main characters in this crookery, and nothing happened. What? Who, who was prosecuted? Who was held accountable? And this is why people have this bad view of capitalism. This is not capitalism. At, you can call it crony capitalism. I call it fascism. Okay, we pay a fine, so what? And we don't, we don't admit any wrongdoing. You don't admit any wrongdoing. You're cheating in these markets. You're a primary dealer in the U.S. Treasury market, and you're cheating. You're manipulating prices for your own benefit. If you or I did that, if I go on a message board and pump a stock, I'll go to jail. And if I benefit from it, or if I am an officer in a company and I tell my brother-in-law about the new discovery that we're going to have an FDA approval of a drug, I go to prison. It's J.P. Morgan, right? Because who's working at the Treasury Department? Munchen? Didn't he used to work at J.P. Morgan? I mean, it's a revolving door, folks. Don't you get it? It's an oligarchy. It's a big club, and we're not in it. Talking about energy markets, Rosneft is one of the largest um, Russian oil companies. I, if you are interested in oil, you might want to take a look at the large um, Russian oil companies. Uh, Rosneft, Luke Oil, um, Tatneft, these are decent companies. Or you could just buy the Russian ETF, which is very cheap anyways on its own merits on a CAPE basis, but that's beside the point. You know, Rosneft, I think, is owned 20% by BP, and this is why I think this is interesting. Russia's Kremlin-controlled oil company, of course it's Kremlin-controlled, right, has warned that BP and Royal Dutch Shell are creating an existential crisis for oil supplies that will lead to higher prices, attacking their shift towards renewables when demand is still growing. Quote, I think that to go away from your core business, which is what they are doing, somebody need, will need to step in. Somebody will need to take that responsibility. It is an existential threat for supply. It is an existential threat for price volatility. We will have a supply crunch, price volatility, and yes, higher prices. Of course we will. I mean, this is the current zeitgeist. Um, we're going to an all-renewable future, ESG, everybody hates energy. So we're going to sell it, investment shrinking, who wants, to, you know, bad oil, bad, uh, even though it enables civilization and everything in your house is made from petroleum derivatives, but uh, none of that's given any thought. And, you know, I'm not going to argue the merits, uh, you know, they could be talking their book here also. I mean, there are the Russian oil companies are not interested in getting involved in renewables. They're not going to. They're going to stick to their knitting, which is oil and gas production refining, transportation, and delivery. That's what they're going to keep doing. So, you know, we'll see how this works out over time. I would say that uh, BP stock has reached a 25-year low since they announced their new initiatives. That may just be a manifestation of the overall weakness in the energy market, but it could also be that people are saying, hey, I didn't buy BP stock to get into renewables. If I want to get renewables, I'll go buy a renewable stock. Stick to your knitting. Stick to your core competency.
I thought this was interesting. This is another brick in the wall of the emerging energy bull market I see. You know, last week, uh, Devon Energy bought and they made an announcement they were going to buy WPX in a $256 billion merger to expand in the Permian oil basin. It's an all-stock deal. And I wanted to point out something here that the management said that on this deal. Um, just the last line here, the combination will create one of the biggest independent shale producers in the country, tying together two companies with sizable operations in the hottest part of the prolific Permian Basin, which we know is in West Texas, which straddles West Texas and Southeastern New Mexico. I like the strategic rationale here. Um, accelerates cash return business model, not accelerates production increases so I can get my stock options vested, not increase production for the sake of increasing production so I can be Big Dick Johnson in Houston. No, accelerate cash return business model. The merger accelerates Devon's transition to a business model that prioritizes free cash flow generation over production growth. With this highly disciplined strategy, management is committed to limiting reinvestment rates to approximately 70 to 80% of operating cash flow and restricting production growth to 5% or less annually. Free cash flow will be deployed towards higher dividends, debt reduction, and opportunistic share repurchases. So we have talked about this before with other companies saying the same thing. Now, again, this just may be a manifestation and the fashionable thing to say at $38 WTI. And as a matter of fact, where I think oil is going much higher over the next three to five years, extremely higher. And I think the tune will change. But right now, low prices cure low prices. People are not going to take the free cash flow, that model of just growing for the sake of growing, to uh, appease Wall Street so you can get more debt you can get more debt and more money to drill more wells with your compensation tied to production growth that's over with that's been over with and we're seeing inventories come down we're seeing drilling collapsing I think last year at this time you had 600 and some odd wells maybe 600 or 620 drilling rigs operating in shale basins I think last week it was 180. So remember, it's the Red Queen's race. You know, these things come on very high production, initial production, and then peter out fairly quickly. They collapse. The production collapses significantly after the first year. And so you have to, just to maintain production, you're constantly on the treadmill drilling. And if you want to increase production, you have to drill faster and faster than the decline rates. And the capital is not available anymore. People have been burned too many times. So we've seen... Company after company, management after management come out and say this exact same thing, that the focus is going to be based on cash flow and returns to shareholders via buybacks and dividends, and of course, increasing the equity in the company by lowering debt, not taking on more debt, not selling junk bonds so we can drill the heck out of the place, no. And so when you have one company saying that, well, that's an interesting concept. When you have the entire industry basically saying that, that's a recipe for the collapse in production 
in the shale basins, which were over the last 10 years, the only reason you didn't have an oil crisis because of that tremendous growth when US oil production went from about five or six million barrels a day to 12 million barrels. Remember, this is an extractive industry. Remember, if you look at the whole world oil industry in context of a decline rate of 5% a year, and you were running 100 million barrels a day, that means you had to five, find and bring online an additional 5 million barrels a day of new production had to be found and brought online every year just to make up for the decline rate, not to mention the one to one and a half percent a year growth in new demand. And so now you have the primary swing producer, which was the shale basins over the last 10 years. They made up for the lack of investment everywhere else. That's getting constricted. I'm not saying it's going to go away, but it's, it's not going to make new records. I remember reading articles at the top of the shale basin when shale revolution, the shale frenzy, the shale bubble, when nut jobs were talking about we were going to take U.S. oil production at 20 to 25 million barrels a day. I read articles from investment banks on this channel, on videos, that said that. That's not going to happen. Now, do I think this thing's going to collapse? No. Is at some point prices go up and a certain equilibrium will be found where capital will come in. But you've got to remember, these things take time. And we've not seen a lot of investment in, you know, non-shale, non-OPEC has not been investing for years. And so if you believe that the world is at the end of its oil demand growth, which I do not believe, if you believe that this new move to ESG and electric vehicles is going to crush demand, which I do not believe, then you should not be even looking at oil. And, uh, but I, 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 I would suggest to you that the uh, portion of a barrel that's devoted to automobile transportation is just one part of a barrel of oil. And it is possible for oil prices to go up in a declining demand situation if the supply goes down faster. And I think that's what we're going to be seeing over the next year. I think that's going to start manifesting itself as the inventories are being worked off. That sense of um, that cushion that, uh, you know, paradigm that people think is out there of oversupply, every week the overhang is, being sh is shrinking. Okay, and at some point that will start manifesting in higher prices. I saw this uh, next thing on Twitter. I thought it was interesting. I wanted to show you why. I don't know how true this is. Um, I'm going to go, you can go, this is from the Minerals Education Coalition. They have a website. I checked it out. I didn't have time to go through it. I don't know if these assumptions are correct or how they arrived at these calculations, but they, they seem reasonable. Um, you know, you can look at like the gallons of petroleum that the uh, average person, so if every American born will need the, you know, 15,366 pounds of phosphate. Well, what's phosphate used for? Phosphate's an input into uh, row crop, or, or not just row crop, but all agriculture as a fertilizer, okay? 73,334 gallons of petroleum, not just for you driving back and forth to work, but flying, uh, you know, transportation of goods that you need uh, when the UPS guy drops stuff at your house, 
you know, driving to the doctor's office, uh, the plastics that you use, 51,614 pounds of cement, 1,000 pounds of copper, 19,000 pounds of iron ore, 473 pounds of zinc. You can, go, you can read the, the whole thing here, okay? And so that's just for each American. And now you have, you know, billions of people around the world that are trying to get a better way of life, that are urbanizing, that are leaving their mud huts and coming to the cities seeking a better life, where infrastructure is being built, where standard of livings are going up. Do you see where this is going? Populations of India, China. You know, I think I read an article the other day, the average person in the U.S., you know, uses something like 20 barrels of oil a, a year per person, and the average Chinese uses three. Well, what if you just take Chinese consumption up to South Korea's consumption? South Korea is a developed country that went through an S-curve uh, from the, you know, post-Korean War up to modern times. I think their their demand is something like 12 or 13 barrels per person. So China's production or demand would have to triple. What does that do? And then if you say, well, John, we're going to electric cars. Okay, well, that's great. That's more copper then. That's more iron ore. That's more aluminum. Okay. You see, you can't get away from this because you, if you want something, ultimately you have to grow it or mine it. And that's forgotten by most people. You're not going to code up a Tesla Model 3 and it's just going to pop out of a printer. That's not how it works. And even if you could 3D print everything, you still need the material. You're not going to get away from that. You can't get away from it. And that's an opportunity in my mind. I just thought this was interesting. wanted to show this real quick, uh, introduction to an article. This is most people's view of nuclear energy or atomic energy. This is, you know, 1950s horror comics during the Cold War with the Soviets view, you know, there was so much angst and uh, fear of a impending nuclear war. The Cuban Missile Crisis in the 60s, it shaped a generation of people's thinkings, and even today, that this is nuclear energy. This is the ultimate manifestation of messing around with atoms. And of course, yes, these are bombs. This is not a nuclear power plant. But yet that perception seems to be people's view. I'm going to put in a link to this article. I thought it was good. It was, I think it was, that was the title. We need a new, a new nuclear new deal or something to that effect. But I think it's good because it goes back to what I've been saying. You know, if I was running for elected office, I would be advocating for a nuclear deal. I've said it before, 110. Let's build 100,000 megawatt nuclear plants in the next 10 years. And let's make that our mission. Okay, why wouldn't the environmentalists agree with me? We're going to reduce carbon. Why wouldn't the unions agree with me? I'm going to create all kinds of high paying construction and operations jobs. Okay, STEM, science, technology. Okay, engineering and math. I'm going to need all kinds of engineers, scientists. I'm going to have to create knock-on effect industries, okay, to create the components for this, okay? And what will we do in the meantime? Okay, we would have, uh, we would replace basically all of our coal plants. And it would be, it would be on a World War II scale. We have to have state sponsorship of this. Not necessarily the state doing this, but kind of like Ross Adam or some of these Chinese nuclear 
uh, corporation. These these places are supported by the state, and you know I'm not saying that the state should run a business, but they should look at the regulations. Let's have one or two designs that are agreed to on this uh, for plants, and that's what you 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 choose one or the other, and that's what you build. That would streamline permitting. That would uh, stimulate people to manufacture those parts. They could get into those businesses knowing the design's not gonna change every other plant. It would lead to easier financing because as the operating histories and construction and engineering histories, it starts turning in from, you know, going to the moon project, building a one-off nuclear plant to track housing. Now that's probably not the best analogy but you get my point as you build something over and over and over it gets easier and easier to do it and cheaper but it's going to be hard to do because the anxiety is there because this is our view of this much of the anxiety about nuclear energy is due to the displacement of cold war era fears of military nuclear weapons fortunately despite their shared history and basic science Nuclear weapons and civilian nuclear energy couldn't be more dissimilar. Reactors from civilian plants don't blow up like atomic bombs, and nuclear waste isn't a glowing toxic ooze. And if you read the article, it gives you the facts about how small the footprint is of the high-level waste that needs to be contained. And it is being contained right now. It's not leaking into the water table. It's monitored. It's done. It can be done correctly. It is being done correctly. So. Just wanted to bring that up. We're getting late here. Uh, this show is over 30 minutes already. I'll have links to all the relevant articles. What I did want to point out is I created a new site on Blogspot. It's a curation site of all of the um, top people that I people always ask me, where do I get my ideas? What do I read? So there's so much online information. So every time I read a research paper or certain people that I follow, like Howard Marks, or Stan Druckenmiller or Ray Dalio, whenever they put out a paper, I'm going to curate it there. I'm going to have it there. When videos are put out by these people that I follow or different uh, investment firms that I follow, small research boutiques or small hedge funds or private equity firms, I'll post them there. It's all public information. I'm curating it for you. I'm putting it all in one place. And if you go on the side, it'll be, it'll show the different, like, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, Ray Dalio, but also be subject, energy, oil, gold, inflation, whatever. And that's going to get built over time. I've, start, I've started in the last week. I will continue to do that as I read things, as I um, come upon things that I use in my thinking and developing my knowledge base. I will share that with you. I will put that out there. And uh, hopefully you will find some use of that. I will put a link to that in the show notes. All right, guys, I'm coming up, I think, on 5,000 subscribers. This has just been a tremendous journey. That's a lot of people in my mind for just something I just do as a hobby. Um, and I've enjoyed uh, all of it. And the feedback has been tremendous. I get emails all the time from folks. I get comments. Um, I hope that I'm helping people. I hope that, I, you know, I can't give you personal investment advice, but I, I hope some of this stuff gets you thinking and hope that it identifies opportunities that may not be as obvious. That's my whole goal here. And obviously I'm trying to sell newsletters. Let's get, you know, let's get to the point here. You know, actionable intelligence alert newsletter, uh, which is available 12 issues, $150 a year, link in the show notes. So that's it for this week, guys. Uh, appreciate uh, 
your viewership, and uh, we'll talk to you next week.